institutional quality hedge funds. Uh, the bigger hedge fund managers I really like working with the most. Uh, Pershing Square uh, is another one that has a higher risk profile, but I enjoy working with uh, Bill Ackman quite a bit. I actually went to high school with Bill. Thank you so much for tuning in to Journey with Christian Evans Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Christian Evans, and we have a very special guest on today. He is the managing partner at Chapwood Investments, which has the unique ability to recognize how current events affect investment portfolios. Okay, He has been recognized, internationally recognized, as an expert in the investment wealth management and personal finance industry. He was featured in Broke, the critically acclaimed ESPN 30 for 30 documentary that chronicles professional athletes and their financial expertise. And the most popular sports illustrated article ever how and why athletes go broke so he works with a lot of athletes as well as a lot of celebrities he has also been 29 years plus in the financial service industry beginning at morgan stanley and scaling that first advisor to surpass almost a billion dollars aum which is incredible he has been he's been appeared and featured on the blaze tv and is blaze branded contributor for the blaze online additionally he is op-ed contributor who has written articles relating to financial topics for national center for policy analysis fox business fox news brett bart and so many others we he, uh, he regularly talks about wealth management and other timely subjects related to finance and investment on radio shows around the country, including Mad Dog Radio and Bloomberg Radio. He has been the keynote speaker at IMCA Winter Conference, lectured at the Private Wealth Texas Forum, T3 Conference, Yale University, NYU Stern School of Business. Do you feel like you think you should listen to this episode to the full capacity as well as maybe share this with a friend, a colleague, someone that's struggling? You bet your ass you should. Please welcome my friend, the managing partner at Chapwood Investments, the one and only Ed Butowski. How you doing today, Ed? That's the best introduction I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I am excited about it and very humbled. Uh, and one of the things I actually found so interesting, and you called this out on your website, and this is where I want to start because I thought this was just so, so incredible. And I think this is really good context because some people – that are listening and say, oh, I've got my wealth management. I've got this investment portfolio. I got this. But you say this on your website, chapwoodinvestments.com. Although we firmly believe that 97.5% of all portfolios are inefficient and are taking far too much risk for the expected rate of return. Let's build that. Where? How can you say that? And I'm just curious, what is that approach in regards to that data? Sure. So first of all, most portfolios are broken. In fact, 97.5% of them are because 97.5% of investment portfolios don't have non-correlated assets in them. And the only way you can have non-correlated assets, meaning not everything going up and down together, is to have alternatives in your portfolio. Um, and, th and most firms don't allow their advisors to recommend alternatives. And if they do, they keep them below 2 or 3%. But the, this is one of the biggest problems. But I actually wrote a book called Wealth Mismanagement. And, and it came about because I realized after being in the business at Morgan Stanley for all these years, I realized that what we were saying was very different than what people were talking about on the institutional level. Meaning uh, when uh, people go to foundation meetings and endowment meetings, there's a different conversation that goes on there than it does when you're talking to an individual investor. So the retail broker hasn't been properly trained on how to manage and measure risk. And that's one of the biggest problems I see. So in a way, I think our whole industry um, you know, is poorly 
or you know the people just don't have a clear cut understanding of what they should be doing and the advisors don't and it's not because they don't want to it's just the training is not there at Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch and UBS and even Goldman Sachs they don't train people on how to construct and measure uh, risk in a portfolio but we'll look you in the eye and tell you we care about you we're going to take care of you but how do they do it? How do they measure it? And most people don't know that. Well, let's dive into that. Okay, so what are the red flags? What are the green flags that like my audience and myself should be aware of when we are allocating and having these conversations with our wealth managers? Well, well, the first thing you need to do is look at the historical relationship between your historical rate of return and your standard deviation. And your standard deviation is the measure of volatility. And the higher that number, the worse the performance of the portfolio is going to be over time. So if you had a historical rate of return of 10 and a standard deviation of 15, what that means is that 95% of the time, your returns would be between plus 40 and minus 20, which isn't very good. That means that at any point in time, in a 12-month period, your, your advisor will tell you that basically your portfolio's returns are going to be somewhere between plus 40 and minus 20, and they can't tell you which one it's going to be. So you need to narrow that. So you need to have a standard deviation that's 80% or less than your historical rate of return. Now, this might sound really wonky to people, but, but what they should do is go to their advisor and simply say, if I had a portfolio with a rate of return of 10, what should my standard deviation be? And this is a catch-22 question, because if the person doesn't know, then you should walk away. And if the person gives you an answer, then you should find out if it's true. And I'll tell you right now, I'll do it for anybody free of charge. I'll, I'll do their evaluation for them. And you'll see that almost none of them are 80% or less. It's just... Well, I'm sorry, well, I appreciate you explain. No, this is incredible because you actually talk a little bit more about this. You kind of talk about it on uh, investment forensics is what you call it, where basically you've designed extremely intelligent analytical tools that easily spell out how efficient your current portfolio is by measuring the eight most important metrics. And you go on in this video talking about uh, rate of return, not um, not lose principle, standard deviation, variance drag fan of tax, and I apologize if I'm messing this up a little bit, sharp ratio, probability of loss, numbers, uh, money at risk, upper and lower return, correlation between S&P 500. Now, I'd love for you to, and I know because I mentioned a lot there, and I'd love for you to just tear that apart one piece at a time so that we can understand it. In this video there on your website, you kind of explain that in a very kind of 30,000-foot view, but I'd love for you to just unpack that. You mentioned, of course, standard deviation, something that we should, like a, a red flag or a green flag that we should be aware of. I'd love for you to just unpack that a little bit further for us. Sure. So so your historical rate of return, I start off with, I have something called ChapVest. I have all these weird little tools that I've created, um, and, and I didn't create it myself. I directed somebody. I don't know how to code anything. But the, the idea is that most people don't know what they need to make in order to not lose purchasing power. So, you know, some people think, well, if I'm making 7%, I'm doing fine. Well, after you take taxes away and after you take away the real cost of living increase and you take away your management fee, are you making any money? So the first thing is you need to know what number you need to make in order to not lose purchasing power. Then standard deviation, which I just talked about, is a volatility number. And, you know, you said a, a red or a green flag. It's going to be a pink flag or a red flag. 
um, because very few people have green flags where it all looks good. But if you have a rate of return of 10, you need your standard deviation to be eight or lower. And if it's higher than that, you're taking too much risk for the expected rate of return. And then I get to variance drag phantom tax, which is something that I made up. Uh, I, I, I know that William Sharp won a Nobel Prize for the Sharp Ratio, and I thought, well, maybe I could win something for Variance Drag Phantom Tax, VDPT. And VDPT is simply that number, which is 0.8, which is the standard deviation relationship to the rate of return. And you, and you can simply evaluate a portfolio by simply looking and saying, uh, I have a Variance Drag Phantom Tax of 0.8, and right there you know you have a very good portfolio. If you have a variance drag phantom tax of one and a half, you're taking way too much risk for the expected rate of return, which, by the way, is what the stock market is. It's a historical rate of return of 10 and a standard deviation of 15. And so you should ask your advisor, you know, what is my you know, standard deviation? What should it be? And, um, and you're going to find out that they don't know. But, uh, you know, right there, in fact, is exactly why you need to have uh, an analysis done because most people are taking too much risk for the expected rate of return. Then the Sharp Ratio won a Nobel Prize in economics, William Sharp, and he won a third of the prize in 1990 for modern portfolio theory. And you want that number to be one or higher. Uh, then the amount of money at risk. Um, well, the next one is the probability of any loss in the next 12 months. You want that to be 15% or less. So again, you, your ideal portfolio is you want a rate of return that is commensurate with what you need. You want your standard deviation to be 80% or less. You want the Sharpe ratio to be one or higher. Obviously, you want your variance drag phantom tax to be 0.8 or lower. You want the probability of any loss in the next 12 months to be 15% or less. The amount of money at risk, you want that to be as low as possible. And you want the bandwidth of the probability of rate of return versus the loss um, to be as narrow as possible. So if you had a rate of return of 10 and a standard deviation of 6, you, that means you have just as good a chance of making 22% in the next 12 months as you do losing 2%, which is a lot better than making 40% and possibly losing 20%. And then... Um, and then the next thing you want is the uh, the correlation to the S&P. That means you don't want everything going up and down together because if everything went up based on a positive economic event, then everything would go down when that positive economic event changed. So you need to have investments that can go up when others aren't going up, which is a whole other discussion, um, but an important discussion to have because a properly managed portfolio should always have some assets that aren't doing well. And that's why my hair is so gray and, and yours isn't, um, because I have to live with this every single day. Someone will call me up and say, hey, I like this, this and this, but what about this? And I have to remind them, remember, we have non-correlated assets because at some point they're going to be called on to perform when others aren't. And our job is not to guess as opposed to what people think. Our job is not to try to guess which way the market's going to go, is to have a portfolio that's always prepared for anything.
Well, one of the things that when I was uh, preparing for this podcast, one of the things that I found was this, this how you laid that out so beautifully, because there are certain things and, and red flags that I was not even aware of that I should become aware of, like you just mentioned, which is the standard deviation. I found that very interesting, as well as that sharp ratio, explaining those certain metrics. This is what lo uh, portfolio looks like in order to make sure that we're, we're on the right path. I want to ask you a little bit, um, and I love this approach, which you just mentioned there, and I think a lot of individuals I, I've talked to. They don't um, – when they're looking at that you know, 8 9% return, they don't also put in and say, hey, what's that cost of living you know, increase? What's Because your, you're fighting against inflation. You're fighting against taxation, and you're fighting against as well as the fees. So I'm just curious when you've you – know, and, and, and maybe you can and cannot say this. I'm not sure uh, for regulation purposes, but what have you noticed in regards to like the average uh, for new clients – their real rate of return, and then when you actually net of fees and net of tax and net of cost of living, how much are they actually, you know, realistically, you know, net right. interest? That's a that's a great question because I oftentimes, you know, I know I'm doing a podcast right now and this is going to go public, but I often wonder, am I improving people's lives because of their relationship with me? Um, and and I like to think I do. Um, but we also have to look at it you know, factually and look at the raw numbers to see after the rate of return, after subtracting the cost of living increase. And I don't use the CPI because the CPI is a bogus statistic. Um, the real number is much higher uh, than what the CPI is. And then after subtracting taxes and the cost of living increase, you know, are you doing better? as a result of your relationship with your financial advisor? It's a great question. Um, you know, my numbers are gonna be different depending on the client and what their goals are. You know, that's a nice way for us to hide behind the reality. But I like to think that we do a better job um, than most. And, but, but we're very honest about it. And we try to put everything out on the table so everyone sees things versus hiding behind this veil of, you know, un, you know uncertainty. And, and, you know, head fakes that brokers tend to do and try to change, you know, different things so clients don't really follow them very closely. I like things to be pretty black and white. Well, yeah, and I see this a lot, you know, even myself, you know, sometimes we, we do talk about these fancy vehicles. They have fancy names. And you're not really sure exactly what those vehicles do. And I want to ask you a little bit. I have seen an evolution of the original portfolio, you know, uh, maybe 10, 15 years. It was very similar to like 60, 40 split portfolio management. Now we're starting to see a lot, you know, definitely in the high net worth and ultra high net worth, which is kind of your your niche. That's who you kind of work with majority um, where they're allocating a little bit toward alternative investing. Um, I'm curious. I know it's very contextual. It's the depending upon obviously the, the, the client's goals, where they're at, et cetera. But I'm curious, how do you approach that in regards to allocating some toward uh, that, that has, you know, outperformed the market, alternative investments? Yeah. yeah. And, and again, the reason you invest in alternative investments, this is important to understand. It isn't because you want to get a great rate of return. You invest in alternatives for non-correlation and because that's how you reduce the volatility in a portfolio. So, um, over time, we've gotten to have a lot of uh, liquid alts, and there's many alternative investments that you can invest in that are in the ETF form. Um, I invest in a lot of hedge funds, a lot of the big managers, D.E. Shaw, Citadel, uh, Millennium, Third Point, and, um, and a couple of others. And then I, I also have recently started putting money into private equity, Vista Capital, uh, Silver Point. Uh, 
and a couple of others. I, I just can't remember offhand, but I've been putting uh, those into different funds. But then we get into the venture capital side, and that's where people, and I, I did this in the movie uh, Broke, um, and I also wrote a, another book called Never Go Broke, an investment guide for professional athletes. And in there, I talk about the liquidity line. And the liquidity line is where you should never put any money below the liquidity line until you have $3 million put away. And below the liquidity line, you have real estate where you should be getting 15% net on your investment. Private equity, you should be looking to get five times your money in three years. And if you're not going to get that, you should not invest in it. And then you have venture capital where you're looking you know, to put very few dollars and hoping to hit a home run. But you should have no money in those until you have $3 million put away. And then with real estate, you should have, uh, you should have about 7 to 12% of your money. In private equity, you should have 0 to 10%. In venture capital, you should have 0 to 5%. And those are – they come at me all the time. Every day I get emails about different ones, and I try to respond to everybody who sends them to me uh, – letting them know that the likelihood of me doing this deal is very unlikely, but I respect anybody who's reaching out and trying to pitch something because uh, it's very difficult to to try to pitch something to anybody and get their attention. So anybody watching this who wants to pitch me, I will respond, but it'll probably be a no. Um, but the the ones that I like are the liquid alts and the ones that are, that have really strong management that have, that are institutional quality hedge funds uh, the bigger hedge fund managers I really like working with the most. Uh, Pershing Square uh, is another one that has a higher risk profile, but I enjoy working with uh, Bill Ackman quite a bit. I actually went to high school with Bill. Um, so so those are the ones that I, I like to do. Then, then there's also the publicly traded REITs that some people would say are alternatives to some in some respects. And public storage REITs. I, I like, I do not like uh, retail REITs at all, um, but I do like uh, big industrial REITs. And then for um, a, a riskier side, the hotel REITs tend to have a lot more bang for the buck uh, because they're a lot more risky than the commercial real estate. So I love how you just unpack that at a very micro level. So you're saying baseline. I love those hurdles too, like those kind of uh, uh, key metrics that you, people should be hitting. $3 million before you start looking at all these alternative investing. And then what happens is you said, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, 0 to 15%, depending upon obviously contextual their, their situation to real estate, 0 to 10% in private equity potentially, and 0 to 5% in the VC. Again, it's all contextual uh, depending upon their, their situation, correct? But let me let me correct some. The alternatives are above the liquidity line. The hedge funds are above the liquidity line. What's below the liquidity line is real estate, where you should have seven to twelve percent of your money, and that's after three million dollars. Then zero to ten percent is in private equity, and zero to five percent is in venture. And and it's just you know all of those are highly illiquid, and therefore you should demand a bigger return for your money for the risk that you're taking. Uh, appreciate that clarification. So that's how you structure it. And I loved how you really emphasize this in regards to uh, even at a micro level regarding private equity and what they should be expecting in regards to the result. And this is kind of the baseline and saying if, if you're doing a 3x, probably not the best fit. You want to get a 5, 5x in private equity, for example. And that was kind of the situation you mentioned. You, you want to get three times your money in five years. 
There we go. Okay, gotcha. Well, see, I'm so glad we're, we're reiterating this. I appreciate that. And also in regards to um, – you, you tend to go more toward liquid um, uh, investments uh, like you mentioned. Um, why is that? What, what, what is your, your thesis behind that? Um, yeah, because most people – most clients want to know when they can get their money. Um, and I've been at this so long that I hate the conversation where say, yeah, well, it's tied up for another year or it's tied up for six more months. And if you can get a similar result with a liquid alternative, then you should go with that. But there's certain managers like D.E. Shaw and Citadel, um, like D.E. Shaw Composite, you know, hit, you know, knocked the cover off the ball last year, was up uh, 25 percent. And you couldn't get that in a liquid alt. And their numbers are so good that it's worth being locked into them. But but at the same time, with managed futures, there's um, a managed futures manager that that I love. Wisdom Tree has a managed futures ETF, and and it's performed very much in line with the index for managed futures, and it's liquid, so you can get in and out of it at any time. Um, so most it's really driven by the client's demand more than anything else, and. Thank goodness, liquid alts have come, you know, to be as they are today, uh, very available. So people can invest like institutional investors, even if they don't have, you know, tens of millions of dollars. That makes perfect sense. And I want to ask you in regards to the illiquid alternative investing things. Okay, real estate, uh, uh, private equity, and VC. What do you recommend, or how do you, you know, have that conversation after? they have a, a liquid event in those, in those alternative investors, you know, so it's five years, they, they, they have, uh, they sell it, cool exit, whatever it is. Now they have a chunk of money. How do you reallocate that? What does that contextual situation look like? Do you shove it right back into those investments or either let it grow? I do know it's very contextual depending upon what their, what their circumstance is, but like, how do you have that conversation? What's your perspective on that? Well, regardless of how much money someone has, because I've had people, you know, with with a hundred million dollars liquid, I always have a conversation about income, because no matter what, people need income. They want to feel as though they're making money off of their money. So the first thing we solve for is whatever income that they need, and I always overemphasize the amount of income that they they're going to need. And I have a client right now who has thirty million dollars in cash, and and he's picking away at. Um, little like chunks of it into private equity deals. And I, I talked to him the other day and I said, slow down because there's always going to be a private deal, but we have to make sure we take care of the income part. And, you know, you're always going to want to have five or six million. I can't believe I'm saying this five or six million dollars coming in, uh, you know, to your mailbox. And he's like, yeah, 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 you're right. Um, I, I love people like that, but we're, we solve for the income portion first. Then we solve for dividend growth, um, very boring stuff. Then we start to get into some of the esoteric things. Um, and I, I, I actually like uh, hard money loans um, and I like uh, litigation funds. Uh, I've been looking at those quite a bit. And these are non-correlated assets that can reduce the overall risk in a portfolio that have nothing to do with the stock market. Um, and, you know, I've actually started looking into uh, wines uh, as investments, diamonds I love versus gold and silver because uh, you can buy diamonds at 30% off or 40% off of what they're worth. But gold and silver, you buy it exactly what they're worth. But diamonds, you can buy them off of what they're worth. It's called the wrap list. And um, it's not just because I'm Jewish I know this. I, I, just, I just know this. And, um, and this is a great way 
to buy diamonds because diamonds move up and down with gold and silver, but you're buying them cheaper. Then uh, looking at trading cards, sports cards, um, and crazy as it sounds, purses um, are also a great alternative. So there's a lot of other ways for people to invest money than just in the public securities. But, but you have to have an expertise in that. Um, and I don't necessarily have an expertise in all of this, but I know people who do. And that's what's nice about being an independent RIA is that we can uh, be a little more flexible with what we recommend to clients because not everything, not everybody makes all their money and should make all their money uh, doing what we do because you know we, we only have certain things we can do, but there's a lot of other ways that people make money. And I like recommending those as well. I'm a big believer, and I love what you're mentioning, non-correlated assets. And if you could maybe unpack this for us, like by by adding XYZ non-correlated assets into your portfolio, how much does that risk come down in regards to that whole portfolio? What, what does that look like? Well, it, it, it depends on what that alternative right. is. But, but traditionally, if you're putting it into hedge funds, you're looking at a correlation of about 0.2 uh, to 0.3 versus value investing where it would be large cap stocks where you have a correlation to the S&P of 0.99. So it just depends on what amount that you put into it. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you, there was a study done at Wharton. I was there for their executive uh, MBA program. And we did a, a study where we took all the assets that existed in the world and put it in an optimization tool and hit a button and said, give us the best mix of returns, our best mix of assets that give us the best rate of return with the least amount of risk. And 89% went into hedge funds. So hedge funds traditionally do very, very well for clients and, and their, their returns are excellent and the, the risk is very, very minimal. But people have this idea that hedge funds are Bernie Madoff. And if you just watch the Madoff uh, special, you'll know that Madoff never invested in a hedge fund. He never made any trades. It was just a complete con job. Um, and it's a, it's a shame uh, that that he did that because he destroyed the reputation of a phenomenal asset class. Uh, and I invest in, in that asset class and have for a long time and will continue to because it's the right way to invest people's money in certain uh, categories. Not every hedge fund is the same, by the way. That's like saying, you know, I eat fruits like you're going to eat every single fruit. There's certain fruits you like better than others at different times. Um, same thing with hedge funds. There's 13 different broad-based styles of hedge funds. Um, and, you know, you should look to see which ones work for you and then decide if the liquid portion is appropriate or not for you. That's a good analogy, by the way. I love that. You know, fruits. Everybody, you know, there's a lot of fruits, but it doesn't mean you, you like all of them. Um, also, I, it's very interesting on a side note to see how I, I'm noticing the, the hedge funds are trying to rebrand themselves and do something else. Uh, I don't know what they're going to call themselves, but I'm noticing because it has got such a negative connotation toward it. But like you mentioned, that's really interesting. I did not know that. I was not aware of that research to see that hedge funds. Now, uh, let's let's. I want to uh, stop here for a second. And how do you look at the proper hedge fund? I do. I hate these questions because it's so contextual, depending upon that client and so forth. But I just want to ask, like, at how you look at. You've been in the industry for many years, and there's a lot. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of verticals within the hedge fund space. And so, how do you go about, you know, kind of picking the right ones uh, and, and so forth? Well, getting um, capacity in some of these hedge funds is very difficult. I, I work through a company that has access 
um, because each hedge fund has 499 slots and, uh, and some of them have less than that. And to go up there and say, hey, I have $10 million I'd like to give you, they're going to say, no, no, my minimum is $100 million and I don't have a slot available for you. So the first thing I do is I look to see what uh, capacity that they have. And then I look at the correlation to the S&P. Uh, Millennium has a, a, an incredible track record of a 10% rate of return with a standard deviation of three, which means that their uh, variance drag phantom tax is 0.3, which is amazing. And they haven't had a losing year in, I think, 20 years. Uh, and so if I had access to Millennium, I, I would certainly be investing in them. So I look at the historical rate of returns and, and the uh, correlation to the S&P. Um, I, I like managed futures. Uh, I've, I've always been a huge supporter of managed futures. When I started at Morgan Stanley, I was one of the top managed futures people there and really got to know it. And, and I love what they do. They're trend followers. So they don't make any predictions. They just look and see if there's a trend. And if there is a trend that they get on that trend and then they get stopped out and then another trend begins and then they start to go along that trend and they just take all the mind uh, decision making out of it. And, and I like that quite a bit. That has not performed very well the last five years, but I do believe that this is a time that Managed Futures is going to do well. Then there's you have Statistical ARB, which is really for brilliant people. I'm, I'm not one of those guys, but these are the people that have letters that are upside down that are somehow numbers and they understand what it means. Um, I, I don't understand a lot of their black box strategies, but they, uh, just like with the, D.E. Shaw Oculus is a, st a statistical ARB fund, and they have a negative correlation to the S&P, and they've performed very well. So a lot of this stuff is gaining access and getting capacity of some of these managers and then determining uh, if, if you know their correlations make sense or not. Yeah, it, it is interesting definitely in this in this field because, you know, like Ray Dalio, I think his minimum, you have to have basically a billion dollars and, you know, to be able to even work with him or even have a conversation. So a lot of these hedge funds, there are pretty high hurdles. And so that you, you do have to work with that wealth manager and, and kind of pool the money together. So it is interesting, but it, it, it's interesting you mentioning this, uh, that, that it outpaces and it's actually outperforms even with all that algorithm and that research done. Um, I want to loop back around in regards to non-correlated assets. We were just talking, you were talking about a few other assets uh, that you're kind of entertaining a little bit in regards to like precious metals. Do you ever get into the art world as well uh, in regards? I've seen some interesting uh, thesis uh, in regards to, you know, high net worth and ultra high net worth and where they invest. Um, yeah. What is your, what is your uh, perspective on that? Right. I, I do not know the art world at all. Um, and I always look for deals and I don't know how you get a deal um, on, in, in the art world. I, I, I don't know if I look at these, you know, people who run galleries as, you know, hucksters. Um, I, I just don't know what to make of them. And there's no way that I can, you know, reasonably have a conversation about it. I, uh, I just know that I'm not into NFTs uh, and any of the crypto stuff. Um, and I, I would avoid the NFTs like uh, the plague. Uh, but when it comes to actual art, um, I would defer to somebody else to tell me. And, and that's the nice thing about, again, being independent is I can rely on other people that I deem to be very smart. Um, and, but, but when it comes to art, I am, I'm, I'm not the guy 
and I'll be the first one to tell you that. No worries. I was just curious because you did bring up those other you know, precious metals. And I was like, oh, let me ask him about art because I have seen some people, they deploy some capital in there. And I'm just like, this is so crazy to me in, in regards to like, you know, the value of it and, 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 the, and the growth. So it's just, it doesn't make any sense to me either. So it's interesting. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, these individuals, like you mentioned, you have this principle, you obviously are figuring out, okay, what's their, what's their lifestyle want like, and, and that, 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 uh, consistent income coming in, there's, there's this, uh, metric, and then you build upon that, which is that portfolio. Um, I want to talk a little bit about in regards to generational wealth, um, in, in regards to like how, what, what kind of structure they should be having that conversation, what that looks like, um, and, and other tools that these, um, high net worth and ultra high net worth should be, you know, asking themselves, uh, and vehicles that they should be familiar with. Uh, and I'm not just talking about like some of these individuals that are, are, are listening to our podcast, they've had an exit and they've got some cash, cool, but they want to structure it properly to think, you know, that now they're thinking, you know, generational, their kids and their great grandkids and so forth and so on. So I want to ask like, you know, you know, not, not specifics, but I'd love to ask in regards to that conversation with some of your clients um, that, that do think that way and how are they thinking about that? Well, I, I do have clients that have, you know, generational things set up um, and most of them are set up in trusts and other, you know, you know, 678 plans and they're they're but they don't like to give up control of the management of it. But they 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 still feel no matter how much wealth they have, no matter how old they are, they don't want to give up control over those assets. Uh, for for you know their kids or their grandkids or you know future generations, um, I'm I'm seeing a lot of positive things when it comes to the younger kids learning. I'm very very happy that they're being engaged. I'm I do a lot of classes for younger people so they can learn uh, about this because the parents or the grandparents don't have the um, the the tendency or or the you know the they, they're not in a position to teach about asset management because a lot of them don't know it themselves. They know how to create wealth, but they don't know how to uh, manage it. But I'm, I have a lot of people. I have this one young guy named Sean who I've known since he was 12. I've been managing his family's money uh, for, I guess, about uh, 20 years now. And he's he's come into his own. He's got money. He's got about 4 or $5 million on his own. And and he understands things very well because I've been teaching him and his father has been teaching him. Uh, and I think that that's a trend that's going to continue um, for quite some time. Uh, it could be because of the internet. Uh, people have access to information and they're able to absorb it. Uh, but, but I'm, I'm definitely seeing a lot of uh, positive steps towards generational wealth, which is different than what you see you know, sadly, in the athlete world, because the athletes don't necessarily learn up front, although they should, and they should be taught by people like me. And I want to make a comment about that as long as I brought it up, that it's not an athlete's fault if they don't understand something. It's people like me. It's our fault for not teaching it in a way for them to understand things, because the idea that an athlete is dumb is just not true. I mean, to look at how they have to adjust defenses and offenses, and, and these are some really, really bright people. They just haven't been taught how to manage money, and that's because the financial advisors haven't taken the time to teach them. And it's like a message on advertising. If you were advertising a product and someone wasn't buying your product, whose fault is it? It's yours, the advertiser's fault. 
because you didn't communicate things effectively for someone to go buy your product. Well, if somebody doesn't understand something, it's my fault for not communicating it properly. Well, the same thing holds true with generational wealth. And, and I do believe that the younger generation is starting to pick up on things and starting to learn a lot more at an earlier age than they used to. Well, and that's one of the things that one of the reasons why I want to have you on our podcast, because I, I love the responsibility that you bring in regards to educating properly and communicating properly um, and aligning, you know, this amazing vehicle and this complicated investing world and all the, the lingo and all the technical babble and making it simple so that they understand, OK, what is the clarity? What is the result? What is that portfolio? What is it doing? Right. And simplifying it. Right. And I think that's very important because it's like we all. I like me, you know, you get in a vehicle, I don't know all the bells and whistles of all the lingo of that technical vehicle, but I understand how to get it from point A to point B. And that's kind of what you're able to do with your lot of clients and it's just simplifying it. So I, I think it's really awesome that you have that responsibility. You mentioned something and I want to kind of loop back around on it because I found this um, intriguing. You have um, you, you've been able to work with a lot of high net worth and ultra high net worth, and you've seen a lot of turmoil definitely in the sports and celebrities. Um, you mentioned, obviously you want to educate them and there is tailwind behind it in a good way and positive way. You're seeing that. What else do you think culturally that we could do to make sure that we're maximizing that? We are seeing democratization of education, which is really good in regards to the financial world. There's a lot of people who are very passionate about that. Um, but what, what are you seeing right now in regards to some other steps that we could be, you know, headed the right direction to make sure that we have that right foundation? Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, it's going to sound ridiculous, but I think that everyone should just listen to me um, because I, I find that when I started this new movement and it started with the article in Sports Illustrated, How and Why Athletes Go Broke, uh, I initiated that article with uh, Richard Demont uh, at Sports Illustrated. I'm the one who got that article written. And then we turned that into the movie Broke on the 30 for 30. And what got this movement going um, has also hurt it because so many you know people have decided they wanted to get into the education for athletes and protect them, but they didn't have the background to do that. They had familiarity, but it'd be like you know somebody wanting to be a dentist and saying, "Hey, I'm your friend. Let me take care of your dental work." Well, there's a skill set that you need to have, and it's not just caring for these people; it's actually knowing and understanding things. And so I've put together that book, Never Go Broke, an investment guide for professional athletes, because I was frustrated with how things were going and how the education was going. I saw a lot of people just putting people in annuities and, you know, people didn't realize, you know, they were putting $40 million in an annuity. Well, that advisor or the person who put them in just got $2 million and they're locked into it for 10 years. And it's just not, that's just not the right way to manage money. But they appeal to them because of safety and saying, hey, you're never going to have to worry about anything. But, you know, there's there's lots of issues with everybody wanting to help but not having the ability and the knowledge on how to help them. So, uh, you know, kind of kiddingly, I would love for everyone just to, you know, pick up my book and read it. But um, But knowing that that's not, you know, going to happen what needs to happen is there has to be some sort of laid out you know foundational work for people to do read a certain book or listen to a book called understanding wall street it's been out for 45 years and it gives you the basics and and 
but there's also one other thing. I guess I got to stop myself is that the idea that an athlete has, because they might not have finished school or they didn't do well in school or they didn't study finance in school, they have in their mind that they're not able to learn certain things. And that's just not the case. So anybody watching this, you can learn this stuff if you just look at the right places and start reading and, and understanding. It's not that difficult. If I can learn it, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. If I can learn it, anybody can learn it. And I assure you that I mean, I've taken guys like Tory Hunter. Um, I've taught Kevin Durant. Uh, I've, I've taught so many people about investment management and I will tell you that it's not that difficult to learn if you have the person who's teaching you the right way. And just on a personal note, how does that make you feel to be that catalyst for these individuals? Because you could be the one, like you mentioned, where you, you, you help them build out that foundation strategically. You know what you're doing, you know how you're doing it, and you're literally setting them up for generational wealth and you are able to make that impact. How does that feel, Ed? Oh, I love it. I, I absolutely love it. I, I love taking care of people. Um, and, you know, I used to have a very, very high minimum. Now I don't have any minimum. I just like dealing with really good people. Um, I fired a client that had a billion dollars with me. Um, it was the dumbest business move I ever made, by the way. Uh, but I, I don't care how much money you have. I care about making a positive impact on your life and feeling good. Um, money doesn't drive me, although I, you know, I need to have it to survive, but that's not what drives me. It's the competition that drives me. Um, and, and I love competing every single day. And, um, and, and I love it. You know, I always tell people that my job is to make sure that you can protect yourself against people that look and sound like me. Cause I look and sound like every financial advisor. Um, and and I want to protect them and know how to protect themselves against people that look and sound like me. Well, I can tell the energy and the passion that you have and, and the impact that you're making consistently now and, and what you did in the past and the future here. So, I, again, I really appreciate you being on here. I want to talk a little bit and get a little personal. We, we mentioned this offline. And um, – you know, you a few years, maybe a year back, I think is what you mentioned, you had some health issues that you had to work through. And at yeah. the same time, you were obviously still building, you were still making that impact in people's lives and running your business successfully. Uh, but there was, you know, on and off. And, um, and looking back now throughout that journey, what lessons uh, did you learn? Well, I, I had a health issue where I had a, a hip replaced and it became infected. And I had 13 surgeries and eventually I had a cement spacer for eight months where I couldn't get out of a chair. But what I realized was how much I loved doing what I do. And, you know, thank goodness for, for video conferencing um, so I could work from home. This was during a period when COVID was really bad. So, you know, some people were working from home no matter what. But I, I realized that my job doesn't end. A financial advisor's job is is not like, you know, from eight, you know, to four, uh, you know, if you're central time, 8.30 to uh, three o'clock. It's, it, we're never ending and we're always thinking about our clients and, uh, and people also, they care about you. But I also realized that people mainly care about what you can do for them. <laughs> so, you know, even though I know people cared about my health and there were some people, some friends that came over often and checked on me, um, 
I, I realized that this is very much a business and I had to persevere through it. And, and I did, um, you know, I, I didn't miss a day unless I, even when I was in the hospital, I spent about 60 nights in the hospital a year ago and uh, on and off. And I was still working and most of my clients uh, didn't know uh, because I had a good group of people that I worked with. Uh, but at the same time, I made the effort to make sure that people were always being taken care of because that's what they care about. You know, their, their sympathy and empathy only goes so far. Uh, especially if their portfolios aren't doing well. Um, I, thank goodness portfolios were doing well when I was in the hospital. Um, but I, you know, I appreciate you bringing that up because I haven't thought that much about it, but I, I suffered for five years um, with this and I wasn't able to walk. And anybody who knows me knows um, I still walk with a, a, a little bit of a limp uh, today, but the infection's gone and I'm, I'm back ready to go. I'm always impressed with people when there is that physical thing that happens, but also you have to, at the same time, focus uh, on on building and sustaining your business consistently. So you have to do both. And both takes a lot of your time, energy, and, and mental capacity. So just on the mental, um, you know, testing that mindset, testing that, you know, um, mental, you know, fortification for your own mindset. And how did that test you and maybe your just mental capacity or maybe, you know, things that you had to work through and say, make, you know, Ed, you got this, Ed, you, I'm a winner. I, you know, things that you had to work through to make sure that you, you know, stayed that synergistic, um, consistent energy. Yeah. It, it was really the lesson of empathy that I learned in third grade because I, I realized that if someone's calling me or somebody's out there worrying about their money, I have to empathize with what they're going through and I and I'm the one who's supposed to answer their questions and their concerns. So, you know, if they, if they're concerned about something, I need to empathize with them and put aside any of my, you know, things that are going on in my life and realize that this person is in need of me, which makes me feel good. I like feeling wanted and needed. Um and and I enjoy that quite a bit, but I enjoy also the thing about this business is it's a great thing I have ADD because I, there's always something new going on. You know, something's going on in Iran and China and, you know, the Middle East and, you know, and trade surpluses. And there's always something happening that I have to calculate in my brain. And, um, and I love that. But my clients expect me to be aware of what's going on in everything. So you could ask me a question about anything in the world today, and I'm going to have an answer. Um, it might not be the right answer, but I'm going to have an opinion. That's for sure. That's awesome, dude. And and you you just remind me of a very relational person. You like you, you 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 treat your clients almost like family, right? It, your their problems are your problems, and you're very empathetical in regards to hey, you know what? And and you you drive with such a responsibility. And I think that's why you know you you've got probably incredible clients, and you know they they understand that as well. And for those that are listening, and and they um probably didn't understand half the things you said. And they're like, okay, I need to talk to Ed and his team. And they want to reach out and have that conversation. I know you've been featured in all different places. Obviously, I'll put some of that uh, content down below. But outside of that, how do they reach out to you? How do they be part of what you got going on, Ed? Yeah, they can reach out uh, to my office at 972-865-2225. And um, we normally just set up a Zoom and and we talk about what's going on in their financial life, what their goals are, you know, their aspirations, you know, and, and I try to, again, teach. I teach everybody. I want everyone to understand everything. 
So um, I do that. And then my website is chapwoodinvestments.com. And there you can see the investment forensic toolbox. And some of those tools you can do on your own. The financial distress calculator is something that I recommend everybody does. And ChapVest is something else uh, that I recommend everybody does. Awesome, guys. Those links will be in the description below. And, Ed, I appreciate you making yourself so available. You put your uh, phone number as well. So I'll put that down there so they can just grab that a hold of that. And then, again, I would recommend chapwoodinvestments.com. They've got tons of resources. they got all of his media, blog, uh, asset man management, inf investment forensics. So uh, incredible amount of content that you can learn and understand um, uh, throughout your, your wealth management. And like uh, Ed was talking about, ask those questions. Um, about your standard deviation and what that looks like in regards to what, what your portfolio. If they don't have an answer, well, what is it? And you got to figure that out. And uh, that, that's kind of a red flag or a green flag, depending upon their answer. Ed, uh, again, I appreciate you just talking about your eight pillars, uh, the, this, this amazing conversation, as well as your personal journey that you would walk through, but really fortify, but also build that empathy even stronger and, and that amazing family and synergistic kind of relationship you have with your clients. Um, Ed, um, I always love to ask my guest before I let you go, is there any last words of wisdom they'd like to share with our audience? Um, no. Um, I would just say that your financial advisor should know how to measure risk. And if they don't, then get a new advisor. Well said. Well said. Guys, that is my friend, the managing partner at Chapwood Investments, Ed Butowski. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis Podcast. Until next time, be uncommon if you can.